Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. I've been struck this past week by the power that feels like it resides at the intersection of compassion and determination and improvisation. Um, I feel like maybe we could substitute the word evolution for improvisation and it would work just as well. I'm not going to get into the details, but there were lots of circumstances that stirred this up for me, and many of them involved situations beyond people's control. Lots of them were about stories that could be characterized primarily either as gross injustice or something like just plain bad luck. A little hard to know how to name some of those. But in each instance, these circumstances were met with kindness and concern toward others and this resolute moving towards solutions and constant adjustment and adaptation for changing circumstances. And that was powerful stuff to get to be in the presence of. And it made me think that personally that I need to continue to cultivate those things in my own life as much as I'm able. And also it reminded me that I really want to be part of communities where those are the kinds of things that are being nurtured as well. And I want to make a contribution to those groups of people if I can for as long as I can. That 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 felt like a that felt like a realization that was already there that got deepened in that experience. And I also had occasion in the course of the past couple of weeks to be on the receiving end of compassion that came from utterly unexpected sources and that took me completely by surprise. And those experiences taken together deepened my commitment to continuing to explore the topic that we're in, both in my own ways of looking at and being in the world and for us together here at the table. Those are, those are kind of fun things to experience, you know, when you, feel like, um, when you feel like there's these pieces that wouldn't obviously have something to do with one another, that it becomes apparent that, in fact, they do and that they're in quite a lively conversation with one another. So I want to dive right into a more in-depth exploration of what we've been calling the enemies of compassion and see where that takes us. Uh, You might recall, and you might not, I've already introduced this idea of far enemies and near enemies. Far enemies being the more obvious ones and the near enemies being the subtler ones. We will be starting with the far enemies. It's kind of like learning to hit slow, straight, friendly pitches with a big old softball before we move on to trying to hit high-speed curveballs with a tiny little hardball. You never saw that analogy coming, did you? Like, when was the last time you heard me use a baseball metaphor? Have you ever heard me use it? That's because I couldn't hit either of those pitches. That's why. I'm not even sure where it came from, but I was writing this, and I was like, that's what it's like. I don't even know what I'm talking about. But that's what it seems like it must be like. So there you go. Take it or leave it. That's a... Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Oh, man. Also, just a quick clarification about one particular aspect of this. 
When I talk about compassion today in our time together, and maybe especially when I talk about fierce compassion, I'm talking about compassion toward others, not self-compassion. Self-compassion, of course, is very powerful and very important, uh, just, not the, just not the terrain we're in at the moment. Self-compassion is, um, is powerful. And, and I, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but I want to sort of start here because, well, the because I hope will, will be apparent as we go. Some of my inspiration for the content of what I'm exploring here comes from quite a, quite a collective of teachers and practitioners in the general area of mindfulness, which we're going to see is integral to the consistent practice of compassion. So because we're going to be talking about that and using that term a little bit, and because mindfulness is sort of on a trend these days, I wanted to take just a little quick side trip and define the term for us, for our purposes. So mindfulness is a word that has both a fairly well-known general definition, and it has a more particular or even kind of a technical one. So I want to distinguish those. General definition, quality or state of being conscious or aware of something. And the, the uh, illustrative uh, sentence cited in that particular uh, source that I was using was their mindfulness of the wider cinematic tradition, which I thought was amusing in our context. The second more particular definition is a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations used as a therapeutic technique. Now, whatever we might think about that part that talks about used as a therapeutic technique, it's the second definition, that one that I just read. That's the one that I have in mind when I'm talking about mindfulness in our context. It's that being aware of the present moment part in particular that feels so essential to the practice of compassion. Compassion, by definition, is focused on the other. And for most of us, perhaps much of the time, our internal dialogue about ourselves, how we're being perceived, how we're being received, how we're feeling, and so on, it's so loud and it's so occupying that it's hard to really be present for anybody else. At the very least, it takes some effort. But without that being present, it's very hard to practice compassion because it requires being present. To the other. Which, in many ways, brings us to the first far enemy of compassion, which I am going to call emotional reactivity. And remember, far enemies are those that are almost like opposites, right? So emotional reactivity is kind of like the opposite of compassion. So let's just start there with this notion that emotional reactivity is nothing like compassion, and it's not even like fierce compassion, which can look like it's full of heated emotions. So here's what I mean by that. In order for us to move toward compassion, we need to know that the other person is suffering. It's a prerequisite. It's that knowing that is our prompt to respond compassionately. But if we're in a circumstance where somebody else is hurting and we are getting hijacked by our emotions in that experience, by our anger, by our fear, our despair, by our own emotional reactivity, it's going to be pretty hard to keep the other person and their experiences in sight. So anger, as we've talked about in this space before, anger is a body thing. It happens inside our nervous systems. And when it's fired up and it's racing through our bodies and it's turning all the other systems to 11 as it goes by, it's pretty easy to lose our grip on our ability to choose how we're going to act. And here's where that fierce compassion idea can be confusing. So 
let's say we see something unjust, something wrong happening to someone, and something just kind of goes off inside of us. And we're motivated to do something in response. Being able to do something in response that is compassionate, as distinct from, let's say, vengeful, is going to require a lot of mindfulness to keep us out of the weeds of simply reacting and on the path to thoughtfully choosing how we'll respond. So we need a, we need a tool in between there, right? Being present to the other person and staying present in those moments rather than being ambushed and taken over by our own experience is going to require being aware of and calmly accepting our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own bodily sensations so that we can retain our ability to choose how we will respond. Kind of makes sense, I think. Easier said than done, though. I I caught part of a news story this past week about the ongoing conversation in Toronto in particular uh, about increased incidents of violence on their public transit systems. Uh, There was a guest on this particular segment. I don't recall the guest's name, but I do remember they are a professor of sociology at uh, the downtown campus in Toronto, which, of course, is right adjacent to public transit. And, uh, And that they were talking about how a confluence of factors is contributing to people not being able to keep it together, so to speak, during ordinary experiences on public transit. Things like an accidental bump or a scowl or a tossed off comment kind of things that we might normally be able to ignore or shrug off, but they can just explode into a violent encounter when one of the parties in that exchange is under duress. It's not easy to keep our wits about us when we're stretched to our limits just trying to get by or to survive, or we don't feel like we're in a place where there's even a a reasonable measure of safety. I find it interesting that when an influential leader in what was then a very young religious movement that would eventually come to be known as Christianity was trying to instruct young followers in this movement about how to live exemplary lives that demonstrated love to other people, he listed the practice of self-control as one way to do that. That's an interesting intersection. Mindfulness is an accessible pathway to self-control. It's one important aspect of not letting our emotions push us in the direction of mindlessly reacting. And that ability to choose, even when we have very strong feelings, is one of the keys to the practice of fierce compassion. Right? Without that ability to choose when feelings are strong, the odds of us responding with compassion, never mind fierce compassion, go down. One of the reasons that I called this series Nuanced Compassion is because these kind of explorations do tend to take us to places that call for the consideration of very complicated and complex possibilities. I think they ask us to go in our imaginations and in our spirits to places where we maybe don't live. We're kind of going to go visit, and that might make us pretty uncomfortable, even to just pop in. That is why, among other things, I think it's worth doing. Anger, such a powerful emotion has more than one face. If we grew up around or have repeatedly encountered uncontrolled or mindless reactive anger, and perhaps we've experienced it within ourselves, it might be hard to imagine it any other way. And maybe that's why we have the example of others to help us out. Stephanie Van Hook, in a 2015 essay titled, Was Gandhi Angry? Quotes Gandhi as saying, 
It is not that I am incapable of anger, for instance, but I succeed almost on all occasions to keep my feelings under control. Uh, Gandhi, you may recall, was the person who pioneered and practiced the principle of resistance to tyranny through mass, nonviolent civil disobedience. He had plenty to be angry about. He had those feelings, but he wasn't controlled by them. He found a way to harness the energy of those emotions and to channel it into his nonviolent civil disobedience movement. And that choice in that particular story ultimately liberated his country from particular expression of oppression. That's a pretty great example of what fierce emotion can look like in action. Now, Gandhi is also typically credited with saying, be the change you want to see in the world. As is often the case, the quote aligns well with what he actually said, but the words aren't actually his. So Gandhi didn't actually say that. Um, What he said about that idea was, no surprise maybe, just as challenging as the bumper sticker version, but considerably more nuanced. What he said was this, quote, we but mirror the world. This, this, is a, this is a short paragraph, but it is full of some, to the Western mind, I think especially, some pretty mind-bending ideas. So I might take more than one pass at it. We but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. Pay attention, folks. Like, listen to that sentence. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards him. This, and I'm I'm so glad this sentence was included in this paragraph, this is the divine mystery supreme. That's a wild thought to most of us. A wonderful thing it is, and the source of our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do. That sounds a lot like what we've been talking about, doesn't it? And I feel like I can hear the next sentence quite naturally being, be the change you want to see in the world. Like, listen to this. We need not wait to see what others do. So, be the change you want to see in the world. The ideas are really consistent, even if the quote is improperly attributed. Now, depending on what kind of religious traditions and teachings we grew up around, we might be inclined to dismiss all of the above as coming from, you know, suspect sources. So, just in case, let me bring another well-known spiritual teacher into the mix, but from a vantage point that might be unfamiliar to some of us. I'm not going to get into full nerd mode on this, but I will happily suggest that if you do, you might find it fascinating. You might not. There's a whole collection of texts that are also Gospels, just like the ones in the biblical library are. And from the vantage point of most contemporary biblical scholarship, just as trustworthy as those that made it into the so-called you know, authorized collection. Uh, why some texts made it and some didn't is a very fascinating study, which, if taken seriously, can adjust your whole view of the world. <laughs> like, honestly, it's, it, it'll, it can shift big things. Some of these texts in this, this not-included collection are even older than the ones we might be familiar with if we grew up around the Christian Bible. Which suggests, and this is close to nerding out, I admit it, but it, which suggests that they might even be more reflective of our Western ideas of trustworthy than those that were selected for the official collection. One of the best known of those, which is called the Gospel of Thomas, uh, in that Gospel, Jesus says this, 
So just listen to this and think about the Gandhi quote, okay? If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Hmm. That sounds a lot like Gandhi, doesn't it? It's an exercise of considerable self-restraint for me to not go into why that might be the case, but I'm not going to. There are reasons. In any event, and whatever source we might find it in, this idea that change that leads to compassion starts with me doing my own work, you doing your own work, that's a pretty easy idea to dislike. I don't want to speak for you, but honestly, I would rather offload the necessity of change onto someone else. I would rather offload it onto a leader, a system, the government, my partner, the other party in a conflict, someone who appears to be morally suspect or otherwise easy to blame. Like, really, anyone or anything but me will do just fine. I really don't want to start at home. But if I'm going to take the wisdom of teachers like Gandhi, Jesus, so many others seriously, I have to face the possibility that this is how it actually works. As long as I'm busy blaming someone else for something, I'm not busy doing the work of seeing myself as fully human and subsequently not doing the work of seeing the other person that same way. In other words, not seeing that other person as hurting, which is the first and most important prerequisite to responding with compassion. Hmm. All right. I think I'm going to more or less leave it there because... The next far enemy of compassion that I want to explore is going to take longer to get into than the time we have left today. So what I'm going to do is have a little shot at a summary. In order to practice compassion, and particularly what we've been calling fierce compassion, my starting place needs to be an interior one. I need to start within myself. And one of my foundational tasks in that interior work is to get a handle on the strong emotion of anger. Not so that I can deny it, or tamp it down, or behave as though it's not there, but so that I can focus the energy of it on compassionate action, rather than actions that are the enemy of compassion. Things like revenge, for instance. And doing that work will require learning how to feel, name, and manage even my strongest emotions, work that tends to benefit greatly from practices like mindfulness or other kind of related disciplines that help me deliberately attend to what I'm experiencing as a whole person, body, mind, emotions, spirit. And it's from those sorts of places that I will grow in my ability to see myself as a whole person and others as whole persons, which then helps me to reach toward the suffering of others with compassion rather than with behaviors that are the enemies of compassion. I wrote that and then I thought, you know, you're working with complex ideas when the summary seems to be just as long as the explanation. <laughs> anyway, that's where I'm going to leave that for now. And then next week we're going, to, uh, we're going to dig a little deeper into the idea of fully human, uh, which has quite a bit of room to move in it. All right. Peace, everybody. <laughs>